I would ask that you take your Bibles and let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the second book of the New Testament. It's the gospel written by John Mark, and he was following Peter around. And so it should more appropriately be the gospel according to Peter. Uh, as we see the experience of Jesus coming through that experience as well. I've titled the, the study today, Servant Leadership. And there are very few things that are so opposite between the way the world operates and the way the church is supposed to operate than in the area of leadership. But the problem is that often as Christians, uh, we are so used to the way the world does things that it's often brought into the church and then we experience this dissonance between what God says we should be doing as a people of God doing the work of God in the world and how we're actually doing uh, that work. And it causes all kinds of difficulty within us. That is the situation in our text today. To set the stage, let's re remember what is happening here in the account in Mark. In all three of the synoptic gospels, which means they have a similar optic, similar view and chronology, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus and his disciples are now on their way to Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem that he's going to be killed. And so he needs to prepare these who have walked with him uh, through these years so that they know that when the betrayal occurs, that is something that he knew would happen. And that when he's killed, that is something that is in the plan. In fact, the prophet prophesied it. We read it earlier when we read this whole section of Isaiah and the band just sang it as they sang uh, their song. But Jesus goes on to say that not only will this occur and this prophecy that he will suffer and by his stripes, by his beating, by his whipping, we will be healed. But he says that on the third day he'll raise again. Now that's a whole different kind of conclusion to the story than what we find in Isaiah. In that moment, the disciples knew everything in the world and eternity, in fact, was going to change. Jesus would now establish his kingdom on earth. He would then be the risen conqueror, the defeater of death itself. He would be the king of glory. And so in both Matthew and in Mark, we see this jockeying for position among the disciples for leadership, thinking that the way the world does leadership is the way that God is going to do leadership in his kingdom. In Matthew, I love it, it's the mother of James and John who comes and talks to, to uh, Jesus. John, James and John, of course, are the sons of Zebedee, as we'll see in a moment. They are the brothers, the sons of thunder, as they're often nicknamed. This mother is full of ambition for her sons, and she wants her sons to be prime minister in this new kingdom that Jesus is going to bring in. She wants one to sit on the right and one to sit on the left. She wants the world's understandings of power and prestige and perks to be her sons so that they can live next to the king. She brings the world's understanding into the church. And she asks a simple question. 
grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at the right and the other at the left in your kingdom. But Jesus responds, as he often does, when we make requests of God that are just so far out in left field that we don't know what we're asking. He says, you don't know. You don't understand. You're asking something that is so inappropriate. You don't know what you're asking. Now in Mark, as we're going to see, it's James and John themselves that come forward and speak for themselves wanting to gain power in this new government that Jesus is establishing as the risen king. They want to be on top of the pyramid and all the ten other disciples beneath them. And so they seize the moment, they make their political move, just at the moment when, when Jesus, before it's established, so that they get the first. And of course the scholars tell us that they were, they were kind of banking on their friendship with Jesus. Peter, James, and John were in the inner circle, and John was his beloved. And so uh, they're, they're banking on the fact that Jesus loves them in a special friendship way, and they're trying to bring that over into political power. So we're going to pick up the story at that point, and we're going to see how Jesus responds to this. Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start with verse 35 and only go through verse 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, uh, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And notice that Jesus isn't codependent or anything. He doesn't say, sure, whatever you want, I'll answer it. He goes, oh, what is it that you want me to do? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will in fact drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So if you're prepared for that place, that will be the place. Now when the ten heard about this, they, were, they became indignant with James and John, as all political processes occur. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers in the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, we're so immersed in this world and its ways of, of doing and being that even when we've spent years with you, as James and John have done, as they walked with Jesus and they watched how he lived, they still had that ambition, that, that desire to rule. And it's in all of us. Uh, I would ask, Father, that you would, you would speak to us today as your people 
who are a part of your kingdom and that you would help us live according to your ways and not the world's ways. Speak to each of us. You know where each of us are in that journey. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have to admit that there are very few values that are stronger for me than that of servanthood leadership. Coming from that place of responsibility rather than power and prestige. But I have to also admit that it's one of the more difficult things to actually live out as a Christian. I understand that Jesus uses the most emphatic language to us when he says, not so with you. The Greek there is, this shall never be. You shall not see this in my kingdom. I understand that Jesus is not a fan of how the world does this pyramids of oppressive leaders who look down on their peons and, and they cause them to, to serve them, lording it over them in some kind of arrogant superiority. I understand all that. And I understand that Jesus says strongly, it shall not be so among you, as the King James says it. But it's not that easy. How do we do leadership? I have this image in my mind, whenever I read those words, of Gandalf the Grey. He's standing before the great, cruel power of the Belrug. He's pounding his staff into the rock bridge. He's shouting, you shall not pass. And as you know, in this Lord of the Rings declaration, his declaration that you shall not bring this into my fellowship of the rings. The bridge collapses. The Belrug falls into the deep pit. But at the last moment, that flaming whip that he's so known for reaches up and grabs Gandalf's foot and it pulls him into the abyss. In the abyss, Gandalf battles with this cruel leader and deep within the recesses of the earth and the recesses of his own soul, he struggles to be the leader that God wants. Because I can see Jesus taking his shepherd's staff and pounding it into the ground in front of the disciples and saying it just as emphatically. This shall not be so among you. You shall not treat one another with that cruel lording it over pyramid of power. You shall not bring that demonic cruel presence into my kingdom. You shall not desire power. You shall not desire dominance. 
It burns and it slices and it whips the people you are attempting to lead. And everyone is harmed. I will not allow it. Not in my kingdom. But if you are like me, it's just not that easy. We get tripped up and dragged down. I think it's very interesting that Tolkien allows him to be whipped and brought down. I didn't show it to you. The movie goes on and shows him battling the Balrug down into the depths of the earth as he struggles with this cruel uh, uh, situation. And it's true for all of us. Uh, Jesus can make his declaration, it shall not be so in the kingdom, but we all get tripped up. And we all get brought down. And we all are kind of not just overcome by our own ambitions, but a struggle. Well, then what does leadership look like? We all know there has to be leadership. Without leadership, the people perish. There's not a, an opportunity to do something. There has to be leadership. But if we're not going to lord it over, then what does it look like in the kingdom of God? Well, here Jesus gives probably the clearest and most compelling image of the servant leader. He says, instead of this damaging way, the way that you see everywhere else in the world, instead of that power and domination, instead, in my kingdom, everyone who wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A servant leader. A person willing to take responsibility for the well-being of others and put them on his or her shoulders. A person who does not seek power and prestige but seeks responsibility, mutual respect, entering into a place in which all are brought to a higher and better level. A person willing to set aside personal gain for the well-being of the whole, the church, the purposes of God. Now notice that we're not talking about a leaderless world where everyone is just doing what's right in their own eyes. This is a leader, but they live for the well-being of those that he or she leads. I liken it, I think the best example you have of that is a child being led by a parent. Every child, you can imagine what happens to a child that doesn't have a parent to lead and to care and protect and to guide, to bring them to faith. But you can also imagine a parent who does not put the child first but lives for self and uses the child for their own gain or their own well-being, and they don't put the life of the child over their own, lifting them toward God. Now, it's interesting to me that this whole area, whenever you discuss it, it's not hard to understand intellectually. We understand, okay, we're not to be lording it over. We're to be a servant of all. We're to be seeking responsibility and lifting up others. The difficulty is not in, in understanding that, it's living it out when we actually get in positions of leadership. We get captured by all kinds of flaming desires. 
desires for power, desires sometimes just for self-advancement or even self-centeredness. We want to be served. It feels good to have people who serve you, to have a place of honor. We want to be at the head table, the head of the group. And so we get dragged down into this dark abyss in our lives. And they are very cruel demons, these demons of power and demons of prestige. And they are demons that each of us have to struggle with in various ways as we live in this, in this broken world. But the hope of the gospel, and this is the great news of Jesus Christ, is that God can help us be, be victorious over the things that drag us down, that cause us to, in fact, inflict pain upon families and communities and churches and businesses and governments. God can, in fact, transform that. When Gandalf the Grey was dragged down into that darkness, struggling to kill the Bagruj, he was victorious and he became Gandalf the White. He ascended into the depths of the struggle and he arose from that, understanding himself and the cruel choices that the Balru was trying to put upon him. He was now a new and empowered leader. The rest of the film is very different in the way he works through the fellowship and destroys that cruelty the rings had so empowered. Now, I don't know where you are on all of this. I don't know how you struggle with leadership. But thankfully, God knows what is deep within each of our hearts. And I know that he will help us rise from the depths of whatever it is that's pulling us down in whatever areas that we struggle. That he'll help us, in fact, to live the life uh, that he calls us to live. There's going to come a moment in, in all of our lives where we're going to stand before the one who is our Lord and our Savior. And there's a statement that all of us long to hear. And it's a powerful statement when you recognize that it, whatever that list might be of what we might think God would say, the scriptures tell us that the great victory and the victorious life will be when he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's spend time with him.